to Rebel Women, a podcast about history's troublemakers. I'm Esther Freeman. This is the final episode in this current series, and I'm trying to do something a little different. You may have heard some of your favourite podcasts doing live shows. This episode is my attempt at that, although I did it a little bit back to front. I ran the event and then decided to turn it into a podcast so more people could hear it. I invited along two speakers, Julie Begum from Women Unite Against Racism and Jane Connor from Lesbians and Gays Support the Minors. They gave us a potted history of their work, which was fascinating. But unfortunately, due to some technical difficulties, I did not record it. The good news is that I have an episode about Jane's activism as part of this series. Check out episode three of series four to listen to her story. Julie's full story can be heard on our website. You can find a link to that in the show notes. And I have a little clip here of her talking about the anti-racism movement in the 80s and 90s. Here's Julie. Grown up in Globetown, in the East End, where I did, was never really a safe place. There was high levels of racial attacks and violence. It's a terrifying experience to come across someone who, who hated you so much that they would want to beat you up for that, really. You know, we had um, skinheads wandering around East London beating people up and killing them and getting away with it. Outer Valley murder in 1978 mobilised lots of people into thinking that this wasn't really acceptable. As a result, thousands of Bengalis and non-Bengalis got together to organise protests and demonstrations and actually led a demonstration to Downing Street with Outer Valley's coffin. That was sort of the beginning of young men realising that they weren't going to accept this kind of treatment anymore. Also, there was a frustration from a lot of women who felt excluded from sort of the anti-racist, anti-fascist movement. There was always the same men at the same meetings making the same sort of statements. As women, we decided that we wanted to make meetings accessible for for women to attend, for girls to attend. Often the voices of women are very absent in these movements. We had a conference to see if there was a mandate for that kind of work. And when hundreds of women attended, you know, we just felt we needed to do something to be active in the movement on our own terms. So we decided that we would do it in a collective way, that we would have a rotation of people speaking at meetings. Um, it wouldn't be this cult of leadership that was often seen at events. We made sure that meetings had childcare provision. And so that's what we did. I remember the Whitechapel, Bethnal Green, where the police were there trying to separate the groups from each other. And we knew that they would go after young men. So myself and others got in front of the young men who were being sort of set on by dogs with the police. <laughs> it would have been harder for them to put their dogs on us. I'm the eldest in my family and I remember doing the same thing with my brothers on the way to school when people would set their dogs on us. And I couldn't just not get involved and not say something and to remain silent and stand by. It's just not a part of my nature, I think. When the British National Party put forward a candidate for the local elections and actually won, the reason for that was people were literally terrified of voting. So we wanted to escort women to polling stations so they could vote. Well, Labour got in. 
beacon was defeated and our job was done really. It was amazing, it was euphoric. And I think there was a sense of jubilation. We were right to stand up for ourselves. Although I invited along these women speakers, what was interesting about the event was who attended. In our audience were many other hugely experienced women activists. Some asked questions of our panellists, but some shared their own stories. It was a moving discussion about the power of women coming together. We talked about challenging male-dominated platforms, building confidence in women, burnout, allyship, and much more. So let's get into it. Here's the discussion, which was recorded back in summer 2022 via Zoom. So I'm now going to open it up to questions. Um, Mandy's got a question. It's not a question. It's just a bit of reflection, if that's okay. Yeah, reflection's good too. Yeah, just like, I mean, I had a similar journey through politics. I think that I, um, you know, became politicised in the mid to late 80s. And again, not in East London, as you can tell from my accent. You know, and that was about the events that were happening at the time. But like the thing, I think the thing that really inspired me during that point were the women that I met and the women who were at the heart of everything. So like you would go to meetings and it was, as has been said, like very male-dominated platforms. But actually when you were out in the communities and you were organising it was women who were doing stuff. It was women who were coming out to things late at night with their kids, like with them. Um, it was women who were in the middle of all of that, loads of campaigns against like school closures and community cuts and like where it was really important and it really mattered, then people would come out and it was just so inspiring to hear back on the stories of like the women in the East End of London who, you know, are having probably it was a really hard time just keeping things together and being inspired to come out and stand up and be really brave in the face of like a really great reaction. You know, that was phenomenal. Like, I, my experience of that time was like campaigning on the streets of Glasgow against racism, fascism as a young white woman, which was very different from like defending your community against hostility, you know, so like kind of my hat goes off to you for that. And then I just wanted to talk a little bit about where I think we are now, particularly in the borough that a lot of us live in, where we have like a a so-called feminist like MP who um looks after her own her own interests and her own people and we have a council that are really quite badly discriminating against Black and Asian families, particularly single-parent families, round about evictions and gentrification in the border. We have all of these lessons of the past, but we have a place where we are now and an understanding that like women can be at the heart of those communities and fighting back. And there's some work to be done, I think, to pull some of that together and to use some of the inspiring stories and the experiences that we have to kind of bring some of that back because there are some tough tough times ahead of us I think over the next few years but like as you guys have said that at the heart of a lot of that organizing and fighting are are women so yeah thank you so much for your stories it was really 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 inspiring and good to hear I've not had a conversation like this for a very long time with people so like really heartening thank you oh thank you Mandy oh hi Jill my question actually is 
do you think we should be training people to be activists? I'm kind of interested in how you learn to become an activist. You know, what you're saying about kind of young women being involved. How do we make sure that young women stay as activists? So perhaps training is the wrong word. Nurturing might be a better word. How do we keep people in by giving them more confidence, giving them more experience, training them? Go for it, Julie. Yes, one of the things that we did with Women Unite Against Racism was to look at how we could build confidence amongst the women and girls that were participating. But uh, we held things like public speaking workshops. Um, We wrote um, newsletters together. We co-edited things. We attended meetings together. We rotated it so there were different women attending different meetings, giving opportunities for women and girls to be active in different ways. And it didn't always mean going out on demonstrations or shouting. What we did was create space for people to contribute in ways that helped to build their confidence, but build on their strengths. And we were creative with it. We sort of looked at, you know, how, how can women be there if they wanted to have their children with them as well? So it's a, it's a way of educating and also empowering women to be able to be there with their families as well as be there in their own right. And I think we can do that with every single experience that we are involved with. We can look at, you know, how can we make this inclusive? What are we doing to make sure that people feel safe and comfortable in this space? What are we doing? Who isn't speaking? You know, who isn't really being involved and why? And what are we doing to make sure to include that experience in the actual process? And if we're not asking those questions, I don't know why we're, you know, it's, it's a serious matter. Do you still give training? I mean, maybe again in an informal way. Do you do you have like talks that you give to people just to sort of share your experience and say, look, exactly what you said. If people are not coming, if they feel excluded, they don't feel safe. And this is what we need to do. Do you do you share your experience in in any kind of formal or informal way with with other groups? Yes, I do. I mean, with the work with the, the trust that I run, the Shadinata Trust, which is a charity to promote Bengali culture and heritage in the UK with young people. Our mission is to engage with young people. And it's really important to engage with people who want to address issues and concerns that mean something to them now working out ways that they can be active in that right now. So I do work with young women, women of colour, people from all different backgrounds. And we do run workshops looking at activism today and doing practical things like making placards for demonstrations or, you know, banners, posters, using graffiti, things like that. Also spoken word performances. A lot of people, a lot of young people are very creative in the way that they use media, social media. So creating little videos, TikToks and things like that. People are doing all sorts of things. Painting murals where I live. There's one going up every five minutes (laughs) about something, you know, and it's really great because people are finding different ways to do that. And it doesn't necessarily have to be overtly political. It could be something simple as joining a football team getting involved in sports because what we found is that there is a a link between sort of playing I don't know in a team sport and the kind of collective nature of that and and the way that sort of transfers into community development and community action people do find ways of working together in different ways 
Brilliant. I saw that your email was there, so you might find an email from me for soon, Julie. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye. Thank you. I just wanted to just pick up on that slightly and thinking about um, most uplifting experience I've had recently was, I mean, actually really a very sad thing. So it was, it was actually around when we were organising Reclaim the Night March in Walthamstow. And the first, I think, really positive thing to say about that is that participants on that were very mixed. I think historically, some some of that, that activity against male violence and things has been seen as a the thing that white women white women do in Motham Forest, uh, I think we've got quite a, a sort of a mix of women involved, and I think some of those issues that you were you were talking about, Mandy as well and, and Julie. So we had a session which was a placard making session. We wanted to make loads of placards for it, so we just got together and we organised, and we just booked a community space and it wasn't women only and we didn't set it up as women only but it was overwhelmingly women but one of the things that happened was women brought their children there was another woman there who's got an older son with learning disabilities and he came along and he took part and we just had this incredibly creative session making all these kind of banners and placards and that's something that Esther does as well is that is that craftivism uh, that she talks about but it was absolutely amazing but one of the things you saw was that confidence stuff happening so what you had is women with different kind of skills levels of ability you know you get People like Mandy, who's like brilliant at making banners. And then you have people like me who are really a bit quite cack-handed with a bit of paint. But we just all came together and we probably made about 100 placards and things on the on the day. But it was just such a kind of wonderful space where you could be. But also like the way it was a bit kind of drop in, drop out. Children children there, they were mostly playing with themselves and so on and so forth. What I would say is however much... We've liked that. And we had a really, really good march, Reclaim the Night March in Waltham Forest, really, really powerful. I think some of us as activists haven't found the energy to carry that on. It's just more a bit about reflecting about that, about the focus, about something actually that was so good and so, I don't know, is it almost that it was too much fun? But I do wonder a bit about that because we said after that we get together and we kind of continue that. We haven't really done that. Again, some of us locally might want to think about that, about how we do it. Because it's also, I suppose, this point about the training. I'm thinking it is about some of that nurturing and how you sustain that activity because it's bloody exhausting sometimes bloody exhausting and it's years and years and I know if I'm really honest I had a period where I stepped back when I had my children I stopped being an activist turn up to the odd meeting occasional demonstration but I wasn't doing that and it was only once my my children got a bit older that I sort of came back and I very particularly came back with the rise of Corbynism in the Labour Party, because I could see so many amazing people kind of getting uh, getting active again um, around that. That is also just a challenge that you can end up doing so much and you, you can burn yourself out. There's sisters on here who've been active for even longer than me, and so how they keep going as well is pretty amazing. I think um, activist self-care is a whole whole separate uh, discussion, isn't it? But it's a really important point. Um, on the chat, we've just had, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, uh, Gigi, who is offered to talk about period power and the Chainmakers Festival. Hello. Hello. Uh, yeah, um, yeah I'm, I'm Gigi. Sorry. Hi. Oh, Gigi. Sorry. <laughs> My mum will talk about Chainmakers, but I'm happy to talk about period power. That'd be great. 
Awesome. So I started looking at period poverty when I was 14. I'm I'm 18 now. And mum got me uh, the opportunity to talk at a TUC event about it where I met Piri Power who asked me to become a youth ambassador so I was like yeah sure so um I became a youth ambassador for them and I worked kind of on behalf of them but also sort of on behalf of of girls um in my school to start dignity boxes in the school toilets and to start kind of the conversations surrounding period poverty which just aren't had I learned more about periods in biology reproductive learning than I ever did in PSHE sessions where we supposedly talked about that kind of thing so I tried to kind of get it brought about talked about more in schools and the ding to boxes are kind of there for if girls come on unexpectedly don't have a pad with them if they don't have enough for their period they can't afford them if they if their family can't afford them it allows them to take more it's kind of maintaining the dignity of, of not having to go to someone and talk about it they aren't abused really at all they're just kind of they're they're used a lot which is obviously good I started that in my local village hall as well and I think that 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 ding to boxes should be available in all public toilets in community buildings and all schools um, including primary schools I I know that some unions are starting to do that as well it's not quite there yet so I, I, I try and promote that uh, the use of reusable sanitary products. So I met the Steve Sinnott Foundation as well, and I worked with them to. I talk about period poverty in other countries where they can't necessarily access disposable period products at all, and it would be much better for them economically as well as accessibility-wise to make their own period products. So the Steve Sinnott Foundation they travel to other countries and they teach mostly teachers in schools how to make their own reusable period products and then the teachers then teach the um teach the students and so on it, it helps the economy as well as they they're able to source the uh the products locally yeah and you know i think i think that should be talked about in the uk a lot as well the period products as they are just the, the ones you buy from shops that contain a lot of plastic a lot of chemicals which are bad for us and the environment end up in the toilet in in landfill in the ocean potentially all and they aren't biodegradable great thank you very much no it's really nice to hear that being shared and remember like when I was younger no one talked about this and I find it really inspiring and refreshing to hear young people talk about it and and also what I'm seeing now is like women my age starting to talk about the menopause and I feel I don't know I feel like we're getting inspired by the younger generation to talk about these things so it's great and was it your mum who was going to talk about the chain makers yeah she's she's also on here with my name hi is it Jenny yeah hi hi that'd be great if you could chat to us about that yeah I'm just gonna fill in a little bit of what Giggy hasn't said so she's actually she's spoken at various conferences across the Midlands and she actually was invited to speak at a parliamentary Labour Party meeting in Parliament as well about period poverty so she is one of these young women that we're talking about one of these young activists who is sort of trying to nurture and encourage to move on so she's never very good at promoting herself but obviously as a proud mother I'm gonna <laughs> just gonna fill that bit in as well so can I sorry yeah. can I just hop back in for a second we were talking yeah. about um <laughs> we were talking about kind of getting young activists to engage more and um I introduced a um reusable starter pack at my school which included reusable sanctuary products uh, period products 
and I didn't get many people willing to try but the people I did get to try they kind of they were like oh yeah you know I'm really interested in this and they, they seemed really keen to kind of to do more but they just didn't really know how so I think it's something that needs to be thought about especially in 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 secondary schools and with my generation hopefully kind of learning more and and willing to speak out is just accessibility to people that will help them do that like a lot of people are willing a lot of people kind of want to give it a go they just don't really know how to do that there aren't really necessarily groups available like that they would necessarily find to be able to contact and get involved in things so I think that's possibly something that needs to be thought about like possibly engaging with secondary schools and, and seeing or you know even primary schools and seeing if there are people that are interested in going going somewhere with it yeah no I think that's all really important yeah so do you want to talk about the chain makers Jenny yeah but just to add to what what Gigi's just said is that, that part of the problem being in schools is because of this um fairly new rule that was put into schools which is that teachers aren't allowed to be political anymore it's made a lot of teachers quite fearful about actually discussing any type of activism because the fear of being labelled as being, I don't know what the word is. It, there's a word I've lost. I'm sorry, see menopause and my, and my memory. But yes, yeah, so, say that again, Inva. Extremist. Yes, that's, thank you. Yeah, so if, if, you, if you do... Yeah, going so, radicalising them. <laughs> Grooming. Grooming them. Yeah. <laughs> So that's part of the problem is that, that schools where, you know, where they do learn a lot of stuff, they don't get the opportunity. Teachers aren't, don't have the opportunity to share these things. Uh, the Women Chainmakers Festival is, is in Cradley Heath in the West Midlands. We celebrate a strike that happened in 1910 where the women went out on strike for a living wage. They had 10 weeks of strike and uh, they actually won a living wage and their pay sort of like tripled within 10 weeks due to the activism that they did. These were women that couldn't read and write organised by Mary MacArthur, I think a lot of people have heard of, and she went in, organised the women, explained what they could do, what their rights could be, and it was a very successful strike. And talking about the use of social media and stuff, Mary MacArthur, she had a Pathé newsreel done about them, so she Mm -hmm. used all of the media of her time to promote the story of these women. And it's something that history in schools is very male-dominated, it's very sort of middle-upper-class dominated, it doesn't talk about people like us it doesn't talk about women it doesn't talk about disabled people it doesn't really talk about gay people black history is taught through um, slavery which is just extraordinary but of course it's because it's been written by white people who don't understand black history you know so it's sort of so all of these things within history are missing so I think if we could just get into the curriculum, the stories of all of these groups of people, the real stories about real people that look like the children in the schools, they will be inspired, I think, to become activists anyway, because they'll see that it is about them. They can identify with the stories and then they can move on to, you know, find their passion, explore that. So if you want to know more about the Women Chain Makers, just if you Facebook Women Chain Makers, you'll find us and join us. Great. Yeah, the Chain Makers story... Um, I did find a way to tentatively link it to East London and it does feature in one of my Rebel Women podcasts, but it, it's, a, it's a fantastic story alongside the Match Women's Strike, which was also poor, working class, very young women. Eva, I think you had your hand up before. Did you have something you wanted to ask or reflect on? I'm going to say that there are 
variety of things that we can do. However, my experience with women role models often didn't work. I used to teach women-only classes and try to get women into technology and computing. My uh, research area was women in computing, women in technology. And while you get people very, very enthusiastic and when they get into the computing work proper and the very male-dominated computer industry, they often lose that enthusiasm and can't take the pressure. So there is, you know, women-only spaces which are fantastic and which work. But to give women enough confidence to actually go against the waves and pressures from often their peers, young women in terms of school, and then against the social pressures that they are under is is a very, very hard work. I feel that throughout my career, we had different organizations waving pieces of paper saying we have legislation now you don't have to be active because you are equal and that is a real problem and i think that is a a, one of the things that we have difficulties breaking thank you imba you you had something to share or ask i would like to kind of focus on what's happening now particularly with young women of color We've got a number of MPs which are women of colour, particularly Asian women, basically, and are actually they are experiencing a lot of backlash from the establishment, the Boston Labour Party and outside. And one of the, the particular examples is Aspana Begum, yeah, that was facing domestic violence from her partner. And then afterward, a lot of uh, backlash through the courts and other things. It is really important to kind of show that there are a lot of different uh, voices we've got. Their voices are particularly important. The other thing that I wanted to speak is Child Q. A quick interruption to explain the Child Q case for anyone not familiar. In early 2022, a black schoolgirl in East London was strip searched. She was wrongly suspected of carrying drugs. Huge protests followed and a safeguarding report later found that racism was a likely factor in the incident. The Met Police were forced to apologise. Subsequent reports revealed this was not an isolated incident, with over 3,000 children strip-searched by the police in a year. More than a third of them were black. I work in a school, a college student under my care, and when the videos of Child Q emerged from the schools because um, somebody kind of shared it, she was really, really outraged about it. Uh, we went uh, afterward to demonstration, loads and loads of young black women, but not only women uh, or black, lots of people in general were there. And it was definitely driven by that cohort rather than by the established stand-up to racism or anything like that that also was there. So it is very important to hear their voices. Mm. Well, the school strikes for the environment where kids came out of school in very large numbers and were supported by official activism, obviously, but they just came out in huge numbers, which was brilliant to see. Just for Gigi, I, I have to tell you that I was in Liverpool last week and for the first time ever I saw at the galleries there in toilets free rather than paid sanitary towels 
Julie, I was wondering whether you feel that there's anything that we can learn from groups like Women Unite Against Racism that we could be applied today. I mean, we've talked about Child Q and some of the other things. Are there lessons that we could be taking from the past to deal with what uh, we're facing in the anti-racism, anti-fascism movements? I think, like I said before, is putting the voices of the most marginalised women and girls in the forefront and making sure that there's space for those voices to be heard and be centred and be the focus, really, rather than the people who are used to speaking or used to taking that space and making sure that those stories and those voices are heard throughout. Because otherwise, if we're not making space for people who are not being heard, then I feel like what we're doing is not really good enough. Yeah, yeah. I've got one for Jane, actually. You mentioned earlier about the RMT strikes and um, and we talked before about the devastating blow that the miners' defeat had to the trade union movement. But the RMT strikes has had huge public support, despite what the establishment and mainstream media have been trying to twist it. And, and it seems every day there's a new group who are announcing they're going on strike or balloting. And and I'm wondering, do you think that maybe we might see a resurgence in trade unionism? I think we are seeing a resurgence in trade unionism, you know, and some of it's quite complex, isn't it? Because it starts to be related to the Labour Party and what's happening in the in the Labour Party. And so, I mean, there's just the actual, you know, drivers of the cost of living. You know, when you, when you turn around to a group of workers and there's 10% inflation and you can say, oh, you can have 1% or you turn around to British Airways staff who you took off, cut 10% of, of their pay during COVID. That was the ones you, you didn't make redundant. And then you tell them, well, and they say, we just like that reinstated and you say no. There's that kind of driver. You've seen in unions like the RMT, I mean, we were talking about training things, but actually unions like the RMT invest in training around political organizing around industrial organizing and so on and you see a kind of a kind of confidence there but what you've also had is the organization of traditionally not not organized workers and actually where often the traditional labor movement has has been a bit of a failure really so all the gig economy and you've also seen a kind of um, developments there, often perhaps small groups of workers, but it grows. It starts small and it grows. You've seen in Amazon in the States, mm. you've seen actually the way, the, the the significant growth of that. And what you get there, and it's back to Julie's point, is actually it is the most marginalised doing the organising there, because actually... Mainstream unions haven't perhaps been agile enough or whatever. You know, it's very difficult for a trade union, which works within a a context of agreements and things like that. When you're in an industry where there are no agreements, all those gig workers are allegedly self-employed. But again, you're seeing those kind of processes happening and some really, really good victories Uber drivers, the cleaners. So the cleaners, which starts about basic rights, but also then... What you've had in some of those places like hospitals is, in a sense, the traditional unions picking that up and going further against the privatisation and bringing those back in. So those gig economy workers, actually, those real absolute marginalised 
black women cleaners and so on have, have then also pushed that i think it's a really positive moment there's political turmoil i mean literally today there is political turmoil there is i'm afraid not a clear response from the labor party about that and therefore i think we will see that kind of anger that activism things more channeled through the unions and i think we will see over the summer and the winter we'll see union after union although trade union membership is low what's happening in those ballots i think is high level of participation in the ballots and very high turns so those members of the unionized will do that and actually last year unison saw growth in its membership i think unite probably saw growth in its membership so you, you feel as well trade union membership will grow because for every successful sort of dispute you have people start to say well perhaps it's worthwhile being in a in the union again i'm not a naturally a kind of sort of workerist industrial person i mean that's not my generally my worldview except actually this is what we see happening and i think it's out of you know sometimes there is no alternative is there than to to kind of stand up and and fight and what's i think again what's important this time is a union like the rmt leading that because they have got the power they really have got the power and therefore they can pull other unions in in behind them so i think we'll just finish with a question to both of you which is the question of this discussion and that is where next for the women's movement so maybe julie do you want to kick off on where your thoughts are about where the women's movement needs to go next what we've always done is to show solidarity with each other and to support each other when times are difficult, also when times are not so difficult. So it's making sure that we reach out and give support to each other in each other's struggles, that we don't feel that we're alone or isolated in our struggles. Great response. Yeah, Jane, what are your thoughts? I think Julie said that, but she also, I mean, I think she said it before it if we don't unite, but as part of that uniting is put forward at the centre, the most marginalised women, the most oppressed, and don't show solidarity there, I think that's it. We're on a hiding to nothing, really. So so I think it is absolutely about standing together, shoulder to shoulder, but absolutely supporting then uh, black women, women of colour, lesbian women disabled women older women poorer women to actually have their voices heard and their and their concerns which are our concerns um at the center of that really but not leave it to them that's the other thing i think and that's a delicate sort of piece about allyship often which is i think a whole subject but actually that how do you have that balance about centering those voices and those activities, but also, and I don't want to use the term check your privilege at all, but I want to think how actually, yes, the the resources that I have in that fight can be used in a sort of positive, constructive way. I mean, it's also about experience. You know, here, sitting in this room, is hundreds of years of experience of women activism. So that alone is such a powerful thing to kind of tap into. I really appreciate you kind of in a sense providing that space for us to talk to each other. Some of us sort of see each other quite a lot, but probably don't talk a lot. And that's been really good. That brings us to the end of this series of Rebel Women. Do go back through our archives to listen to other stories of rebellious women. 
We have episodes on lesbian suffragettes, the battle for equal pay, the story of the Miss World protests and more. If you want to discover more about Julie's work, she is currently developing a new archive of local family photographs from the Bengali community, as well as a physical home for existing archives of Bengali community activism. A final showcase and talks will take place in spring 2023. I'll pop a link in the show notes if you want to get more details about that. Rebel Women will be back in 2023 with a fifth series, which is going to be about women's role in pandemics. We've got some fascinating findings, both from the 1918 pandemic and our recent lockdown. So make sure you are subscribed so you don't miss an episode. If you are listening close to release, I'd like to wish those who celebrate a wonderful Christmas and a peace and justice-filled new year. If you are listening to this in the future, may your day be as full of hope and optimism as if it were the new year. Thanks for listening. Thank you.